along to the Property Academy podcast. I'm your host, Ian McKnight. And I'm Andrew Nicholl. And today on the show, we once again joined by Jenny Turner from Wynn Williams. And here today, we're going to be talking about ownership structures. Now, this is one of the most common questions we get asked. Should I hold my properties in my own name, a trust, maybe a company, or something else? And what's the most appropriate structure? Now, of course, the answer is always going to be that it's going to be different for every different person. But what we are going to do today is break down the different ways that you can hold your properties in and some of the people who these may be more appropriate for than others. But of course, please do seek your own legal advice as well and your own accounting advice because it will be different for each person. But first of all, Jenny, walk us through what are those main ways to hold properties and who do they tend to be more the right fit for over other people? Sure. So obviously there's you in your own name doing what you do personally. That might work if you are an employee, you don't really have any business risk and you're just looking to keep things simple, just operating one centre financials and worrying about tax in your personal name. And then building on that, if you had some business risk or you were, say, second relationship, adult children, both bringing something into the table, you might think of a trust where you're ring fencing who the asset's held for in terms of beneficiaries. And then a limited liability company is a really common choice with investors. So you've got your personal home, you're doing your thing over there, and then you're saying, look, for this rental property, particularly with that interest deductibility piece, which is diminishing now, you might have had really good reason to have a different taxable entity owning that, borrowing money and doing its thing there. And then variations on that in terms of the shareholding, when you dive into that limited liability company, it might make sense for the trust to hold the majority of those shares. So again, you've got that creditor protection, but you might have some shares in your personal name so you can still pull some income stream out of that company. So in that case, we've got a company which is owned in part by a trust. So you've got two entities or two layers of protection there? Yeah, you've got one company and you dive into the company's records online and you'll see that you might have one share in Ed's name, one share in Andrew's name, and then you might have 98 shares held by Ed, Andrew and Jenny Turner, trustee limited. So Jenny's it's just got a lot of investments. Uh, yeah, she's, <laughs> we saw that. That wasn't really wise of me, perhaps. There's no relationship property agreement here, Jenny. <laughs> So you can see that those 98 shares are not held personally, but there's a trust structure in there. And what that means is any shareholding profits, et cetera, pulled out to that trust will be held on trust for the beneficiaries. So again, if Andrew and Ed were in another life, they were builders or they... Um, <laughs> <laughs> Unlikely, but okay. <laughs> you were doing something where there might be some real risk of personal liability due to, say, director's duties being breached, etc. It makes sense for you to minimise your assets in your personal name and hold them in that trust structure. So that's why it's commonly used. So why would I still hold 1% of that company or one share in that company in my own name and same for Andrew? Again, to the income piece. So if it might make sense in terms of people's personal income levels in a certain tax year that they pull a shareholding wage or a figure out of that company to get the benefit of a different personal tax rate. Yeah, so if I were on the lower tax rate than what the company or the trust is going to pay, then I can pay myself as a shareholder. Oh, okay, so you obviously can't take the shareholder salary if you don't own a share in the company. Correct. God, it's well, all well dodgy. Done. That's it's, the accountant's face. God, it's all dodgy, isn't it? This, this kind it's of not stuff. It's dodgy. That's the law. 
definitely not dodgy. Structuring to maximise return. I love that exactly. code from the law here. Not dodgy at all. Just the law. <laughs> and actually, so so this is getting a bit blurry in terms of do I talk to my lawyer or my accountant about this type of stuff? So what do you normally recommend? Who do I talk to first? Well, I think your lawyer would probably be the first to maybe recognise whether or not you have a wider overarching need for a trust. But generally, the tax advice and the accounting advice on a transaction transaction basis will drive the ultimate structure. So back when interest was deductible on loans in those good old days, obviously what you might have, say you use say a look-through company and then let's pretend ring fencing wasn't around, then you were able to kind of offset your properties that were making a loss and a trust, they get captured by the trust. They were ring-fenced by the trust. So you might have properties that made a profit in a trust. You might have properties that made a loss in a look-through company. So that's where you have to make sure you are speaking to both your lawyer and your accountant about this. Now, let me ask you this, Jenny. Why would I use a big-name law firm like a Wynn Williams? Wouldn't it be better just to go to a cheaper, smaller firm? Or is this something you shouldn't be cheaping out on? No, I Definitely not. So if you go to a smaller law firm and you are purchasing a property, often they'll work on a limited retainer basis. So the headline figure to get you in the door will be smaller, obviously, than some of the other firms. But they'll literally do that task in front of them and won't extend anything further. So with Wynn Williams, we have full service team and we'd be looking at you in a more holistic way. So if you're looking at purchasing a property, that structuring question rears its head every time. You know, how should we be doing this? Even if it's your home, should you be doing it side by side or is it more appropriate that you each own defined shares in a property? And then layer on top of that, you know, the relationship property piece, which we've talked about in an earlier episode, and you've got your wills, all sorts of wider considerations that you're being looked after as best as possible. So if I come see you, Jenny, you're going to make sure that nobody's going to sue me. If that's your end goal, yeah. <laughs> I'm looking at you, Andrew. So tell me, how are the drivers behind moving your assets around and ownership structures changed recently? So that high-end tax rate in the personal tax bracket, we've seen there was quite a few calls um, yes. pre the end of the last financial year asking questions around the trust. And before my time, admittedly, but that was one of the drivers to the popularity and trust in New Zealand is that it had a much lower tax rate than yes. the personal income. So we may go full circle in that space, but I suspect, again, not looking into that crystal ball, but I suspect that the tax rates may even out again in the I future. I would imagine they will. Let me ask you this, Jenny. I had a question from a listener who says, look, we're currently building our second property and it seemed to be the best for us to put it under our own names to keep our options open in case we decide to move out of our personal house and use this new house as a flat in the future. We might move into that. What are some of your thoughts around this? Do you think they've got it right in terms of having it within their personal name rather than something else or... It'll depend on what their plans are, but if they're wanting to leave that open for flexibility, open for the potential that they might actually move in there, then it might be that that personal piece is relevant. If they are looking to buy, hold two for a short period and then sell down and move back into just one family home, then it might make sense to keep things simple. If they are looking to start accruing rental properties in a long-term hold basis and not wanting to worry about the effects of the Brightline test, then then you know, a company might be better suited, but it doesn't sound like that from what I'm gleaning from that snippet. Now, one of the things that is quite interesting, just coming back to the discussion around the change in the top tax rate. So I've been running some numbers over a 15-year period, You know, one of our standard properties. Now, or once interest deductibility comes off, 
And if you were paying that lower tax rate of 33%, so I'm looking at a 600K property renting at $525 a week, I'm estimating that you'd save about a grand a year by holding that property in a trust with a 33% tax rate as opposed to holding it in your own name at a 39% tax rate. So paying that extra 6%. So over 15 years, saving yourself 15 grand. So certainly if you are currently on the top tax rate, you're holding properties in your own name, it may be the right thing for you to look at moving those into a trust subject to thinking about things like bright line, subject to thinking about things like interest deductibility. Yes, just remember, once you move it into the new entity, not only do you restart that bright line clock, but also you lose the interest deductibility from day one. Yes, whereas otherwise it would be phased out over the next four years. Yes. Did you it, take that into consideration in your calculations? I certainly did. Oh, I hate when you do that. I know you do. <laughs> so definitely, I think once we get to the point where that interest deductibility is fully phased out, that might be where you start to see some of those properties being transferred over from people's own names over then into the trust. But of course, subject to what the tax rules are at that Assuming time. We have a Labour government. And the other thing we haven't touched on is security. So often what the bank requires in respect to securities coupled with your wider asset planning and business risk profile will dictate your structure. So for example, if your whole driver is that you are in risky business, building leaky homes might be a director's claim coming your way, you probably aren't going to want to go and do your business activity in the same structure as your main home. So a lot of people, their first driver is to make sure that their main home is essentially their island, even if their business activity doesn't go well. So you don't want to undermine that by accruing your business activity property portfolio in such a way that you're then anchoring it back to your personal home with, say, personal guarantees, where it all ends up in the bucket if things don't go as planned. And so this is actually quite a common misconception that I'll chat about with clients. So people think that just by putting a property in a trust that then it's protected from the bank. But if you're using that property that's in the trust to be co-security on other assets, say investment properties, you're borrowing 100% against an investment property. But of course, as we know, 40% or 20% of it, the deposit for that's coming against your house, there'll be a cross guarantee, which means that the bank has ties to everything. So the, the two people that you're probably unlikely to structure your way away from are the bank and then the IRD. Correct. And you can use a company, it'll have all the benefits perhaps in the accounting space. But at the end of the day, if you're using a company, the bank knows that they can be liquidated and wound up and disappear tomorrow. So they're always going to more often than not ask for directors and shareholders guarantees back from the real people behind whichever entity you choose. Now, I always find these ones slightly frustrating by the fact that so much of it depends on personal situations, what you've got in place. So it's really hard to say cut and dry that you should use a trust or a company or in your own name. So of course, get some of that advice. But generally, if you've got quite a simple situation, is it fair enough to say that your first property that you own, perhaps as an owner-occupier, your first investment property, you might hold it in your own name, Jenny, and then perhaps as you get more developed interests over time, as you get older, perhaps as you start companies, perhaps as you gain more interest, that's where you'd look to use some of these more advanced entities? Yeah, I think that's a fair comment, Ed. And I think a lot of that will be dictated by the tax rules at the time and the accounting advice. The other piece in terms of structuring is that claim risk. So I've spoken about business risk. I haven't spoken about in that kind of asset planning space. So if you have an estranged child, awful thought, but if you had an estranged child or you've got 
again, the relationships property piece coming into it, that may dictate future structures. But if it's just you, owner-occupied, starting out, more likely that you'll start simple and then maybe need to move to something else over time. Just while we've got here, just in terms of other things that people should think about while they're thinking about the ownership structure and everything like that, wills, enduring power of attorneys, just quick two seconds on each of those. What do they mean? Why should I get one? So wills obviously work for property in your personal name. After you're gone, you'll have duties at law to leave things to certain people. If you leave them out, you may be opening up the door for a claim to be brought against your estate. Conversely, enduring powers of attorney work while you're alive and in most instances when you're unable to make your own decisions. Super helpful document to have, sign, put on a shelf, hopefully you never have to use. And then if you have moved into a company or trust structure in a trust space, trust property won't fall into your will. So memorandum of wishes, what's happening to that trust property when you go? And obviously that will be defined ultimately by that beneficiary class. So the people that you're holding that property on trust for. And enduring power of attorney is particularly important if you've got maybe a company structure where one partner in a relationship has the shares in their name for tax reasons. But as far as anyone's concerned, it's joint relationship property. And if that person ends up injuring themselves and can't make a decision, you want the person who can make a decision to choose to sell the property to pay for medical costs or something like that. Fantastic. Let's wrap it up there, but please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. Really does help us get the message out to more people. And hey, we also want to know your questions, your other questions around ownership structures, because I know you all have a lot of them. So whip out your phone, send us a text. Our number is 5522. It'd be great to hear from you. And actually, if you've got any other questions or topic ideas that you'd like us to answer on the podcast, let us know. We'll answer them on the show. listening to the Property Academy podcast. I'm your host, Epic Knight. And I'm Andrew Nicole. And we're going to be back again tomorrow with even more daily strategies, tactics and insights to help you get the most out of the New Zealand property market. Until next time, 